Hi there, my name is Catherine Elsden. I'm the minister at Bethel Maidstone United Church. We are a small congregation with a big heart located in Maidstone, Ontario. This podcast is a way for you to connect week to week with the worship life of our congregation. This episode is the third in a series entitled Food for the Soul. We're exploring food and drink in the ancient world, in scripture, in our everyday lives to understand its significance for our faith. This sermon focuses on wine, and I preached it on Thanksgiving Sunday, a day to pause, to count our blessings, and celebrate the harvest with great food. Our gospel reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. So this is at the beginning of John's gospel. And this, in fact, is Jesus' first miracle in that gospel. It's a story entitled, The Wedding at Cana, verses 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the wine that, he, that had become, check that, when the steward had tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Today is Thanksgiving Sunday, a day to celebrate the harvest, to celebrate our many blessings. And what do we usually do to celebrate? Eat, eat and drink, exactly. And as you said, there are some traditional dishes served this time of year, usually Turkey, gravy, and potatoes, I think, form the staple. And then there's kind of a variety of side dishes. What are some of the the side dishes or the desserts that are traditional in your house? Pumpkin pie. There is a number. Squash. Cranberries or cranberry sauce. Nobody does any of those um, marshmallow sweet potato dishes that are popular in America, no? Brussels sprouts, yeah, all kinds of vegetables and just a colorful display at harvest time. 
Food and drink play central roles in how we mark special occasions. And this year is different, right? Our Thanksgiving celebrations are not gonna look and feel the same because we are limiting the number of people that we are gathering with. But typically, Thanksgiving is always about feeding a crowd. Throughout our series, uh, Food for the Soul series, members of the congregation have been submitting recipes to me. And Ted and Arlene offered a recipe for a crowd. And you're gonna see it up on the screen. It's for elephant stew, source unknown. Recipe goes like this, one elephant, salt and pepper to taste. Two rabbits, optional. Dice the elephant into small pieces. This should take about two months. Add enough brown gravy to cover and season. Cook over kerosene stove about four weeks at 465 degrees. This will serve 3,800 people. If more are expected, two rabbits may be added, but only if necessary, because most people do not like to find a hare in their stew. <laughs> so that's a new one to try for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and apparently, Arlene just had that in her recipe box. Oh, it's from a book from here. Oh, okay, so you came across it while you're going through the recipes. That's awesome. So throughout the year, we mark holidays by preparing and serving special foods. And um, this week, I wanted to highlight a, a special recipe from my own family. It's my mother Mary's carrot pudding. My mom and her whole side of the family serve this pudding Christmas Day. Um, it's an Irish recipe handed down through generations of my family, and it, I believe, comes from a time when people used to preserve and dry things at the harvest time so they could enjoy those foods throughout the winter. So it's a unique recipe. It's made with brown sugar, shredded carrots and potatoes, raisins and flour, heavily spiced with lemon and orange peel, cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice and cloves. Now what you do is you steam it for several hours and then you let it sit out so that it completely dries over the course of a few weeks. At that point, you can put it in your cupboard and forget about it until Christmas Day when you steam it again for hours so it's, it becomes, you know, cake-like, dense cake, uh, and you serve it with warm rum sauce. As a child, it was really the rum sauce that was the attraction. But I have to say, as an adult, I have come to appreciate this really fragrant uh, spiced cake. I'm sure all of you can also think of special holiday time recipes from Christmas. But did you know there's one among us who has a special birthday recipe? That's Jean. She submitted her recipe for spaghetti meat sauce. And Jean tells me that growing up, it was a birthday tradition in her house that her mother would make a special, uh, do a special request meal for the birthday child. So the child got to choose what they were going to have for dinner, and they also got to choose a special friend to invite over to share the meal. So Jean always picked spaghetti with meat sauce, and she always picked her friend Patricia to come and enjoy it. Made with ground beef, onion, garlic, tomato, oregano, and fresh basil, topped with Parmesan, Jean says her birthday is still not complete if she doesn't eat a steaming plate of spaghetti with meat sauce, now made mostly by Gord, or by her daughter Melissa or daughter-in-law Amy. 
Preparing special foods and gathering to eat them has long been a way to celebrate special occasions. And in our gospel reading today, Jesus is at one such special occasion. He is attending a wedding at Cana when something really embarrassing happens. The nightmare of every host, the wine runs out. A little backstory here, wine is mentioned throughout the Bible, beginning as early as Genesis, chapter 9, verse 8, where it says, Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. And in the very next verse, he's also the first in biblical history to get drunk. So I think those two must go hand in hand. There is, in fact, a long history of wine production in the Holy Land, going back at least to the third millennium BCE. The land of Israel enjoys a lot of the the same agricultural and climate benefits of other wine wine regions like California, France, Italy, and Greece. Now, as you can imagine, the production of wine in the ancient world looked very different than it does today. The earliest wine presses were actually, can you guess it? Yes, the human foot. Apparently, the human foot were able to manage um, the gentleness of the press in a way that avoided breaking the pip, which is the inner part of the grape containing the oil, seeds, and tannins. So in the Roman Empire, in Jesus' day, there were screw presses, those did appear, but wine was predominantly still made by pressing grapes with feet. Wine production required only grapes and yeast, and actually the yeast is naturally occurring in the skin of the grape. So once the grapes were broken by the feet and the juice extracted, this yeast began to work on the juice. Now, fermentation process produces CO2. So ancient vintners had a difficult challenge to leave the juice exposed to air long enough so that the carbon dioxide could escape, but not so long that airborne fungus could infiltrate the juice and turn the alcohol into vinegar. As an aside, vinegar was actually a beverage in the time of Jesus. They would drink it uh, diluted with water and spiced with different infusions. But if you're trying to make wine, right, vinegar is not the outcome you want. The Bible tells us that the time of the grape harvest was a time of great celebration, very much like our Thanksgiving festivities, a time when the harvest was celebrated and that naturally led to giving thanks to God for making it all possible. So wine becomes a daily offering to the altar of God in the history of Israel, and also an offering on special occasions. Throughout scripture, it's a symbol, wine, for joy, abundance, life, and celebration. In the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, wine was also a part of daily life. It too was typically diluted with water before drinking. And what I think is interesting is beer was invented, it was available, but it was really kind of a second-class beverage. Beer was associated with barbarians, with Germans and Britons, and wine was the drink of the cultivated society. So, So wine was the favored drink, and it was often flavored with infusions of fruit, tree resins, and spices. There's no glass back then, so wine was stored in ceramics or in wooden casks, 
And these kind of infusions and flavors would mask some of the deterioration, but they were also really enjoyed for adding interest and variety to the flavor of wine. So wine's part of daily life, it's part of religious life, it was appreciated for many benefits, including medicinal uses. It was used on wounds as an antiseptic. It was used for stomach ailments. But we all know you can have too much of a good thing. And Jesus' society was very much aware of the dangers of overindulging in alcohol. There are numerous teachings in scripture against drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. In 1 Peter 4, it speaks of drunkenness as an excess of those who do not follow God. So wine is a part, very much a part of the daily food and drink scene of Jesus' day, but for Christians, it was to be enjoyed in moderation. So Jesus drinks wine in scripture. He, he is critical in his teachings of drunkenness, and he also uses wine and winemaking as a metaphor to describe himself and his relationship to God. He's not unique in using that metaphor. As we, we've already seen, it, wine is a symbol throughout scripture, and winemaking is as well. In the Older Testament, the grapevine is used several times as a metaphor for Israel, with God as the vine grower, who at times needs to prune dramatically, but also tenderly cares for the vine. Jesus expands on those metaphors in John chapter 15, when he declares, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. We can think back to the Last Supper. Jesus takes wine and uses it to symbolize and explain the promise of God. From Matthew chapter 16, then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus' very first miracle in the Gospel of John centers around wine. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are attending a wedding in a small town called Cana in Galilee. Only two days before this wedding, Jesus has called his first disciples. So this is very early in his ministry. He hasn't really revealed himself fully yet. We can assume that most of this small village has come out to celebrate. Weddings were week-long activities hosted by the groom's family. We don't know whose wedding it is. Scripture doesn't say. Maybe a friend or a cousin. But we can imagine what that scene would have been like, right? Laughing, celebrating, people reconnecting with friends and acquaintances, eating and drinking. It all sounds so wonderful to my pandemic-weary ears, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus' mother is there, and she's enjoying the party when she notices the wine is running out. Maybe she sees a stricken look on the host's face. Maybe she sees the empty barrels. This would have been a real cause of shame and embarrassment for the hosts. You can remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the high value placed on hospitality. So this would have been a source of shame for those hosting the feast. Who knows why the wine has run out? Perhaps more people than expected arrived. Maybe there was a misunderstanding or a mistake. Maybe they couldn't afford more wine. 
Whatever the reason, Jesus' mother sees a need and she believes her son can help. She believes in his goodness and power. She says to him, perhaps with pleading in her voice, they have no wine. Jesus, it's clear from his response, understands the implication that she wants him to do something about it. In essence, he kind of says, not now, mom. She's hoping for a miracle, but Jesus doesn't believe that it's time for him to reveal that side of himself to his wedding guests. He says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Perhaps his mother kept faithfully nudging him because just moments later, he instructs the servants to fill the big vats with water and to draw a cup from those vats and take it to the chief steward, the master of ceremonies. When the chief steward accepts the drink, we learn that the water has turned into good, rich wine. So Jesus has provided the wedding guests with gallons and gallons of good, rich wine. So the celebration can go on and on. And this, I think it's so awesome. This is Christ's first sign in the Gospel of John. This is his first miracle. This is the kickoff to his ministry with a party. It reveals something about him, doesn't it? It tells us something about who he is and about the God he embodies. This sign points to the reality that God gives life abundantly. It reveals to us a God who puts joy into life, who believes it's worth a miracle to save a family from embarrassment and keep the party going. It's a sign of extravagance, of abundance, transformation, and new possibilities. The disciples see this sign, and scripture says they believed. Jesus' mother sees this sign, and it confirms what she already believed. All of them recognize the power of Christ and the abundant life he gives. All of them, except that is for the chief steward. He misses it. The chief steward thinks there must be some sort of breach of etiquette to explain why the good wine was saved for last when the poor quality wine was served first. And he says as much to the bridegroom, I can't believe you saved the best wine till last. That's not the usual custom. The steward recognizes the goodness of the wine, but not its source in Christ. Christ is the sustaining drink and the real cause for celebration. Later in the gospel, Jesus says that he is the true drink and living bread. Last week, we heard him say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Christ is the bread and drink that nourishes and sustains us spiritually, fills our emptiness with hope and joy. At the wedding at Cana, Christ's face is reflected in the pools of flowing wine being poured out to the happy wedding guests who are there to celebrate life. This miracle of overflowing reveals to us that God came among us so that we may have life and have it abundantly. And that is cause to give thanks, this Thanksgiving Sunday and every day. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Each week, I genuinely hope you find something to interest, inspire, and challenge you. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and telling your friends. All the recipes we're highlighting in this series can be found on our church Facebook page. Next episode is about fish. Until then, may God bless you and keep you.